Good morning, everyone. A special welcome to those here for the first time. I know we have some visitors with us. You may have a, a, a sheet. You may be sitting on it if you want to get a hold of it. Uh, and if you open your Bible in 1 Peter and just keep that open, that will be the first scripture we'll turn to in a moment. Uh, so about three or four weeks ago, we started a new series, really a series for the church called Ready, Steady, Go. And it's a series for the church in two ways. For new churches, to help them get started, to help them get off. So many churches struggle just to get off the ground. And for established churches that have maybe, maybe stalled, and you see that all the time. A church will go to three or four hundred and then drop back to two hundred, and everybody thinks it's the end of the world. But it isn't. Still a good church. Just need to do a little tweaking here and there, a few adjustments. And most often the problem with churches is silly little things, like ready, steady, go. Silly little things like prayer, like evangelism, like discipleship. A church should be ready in prayer. A church should be steady in discipleship. And a church should be going in evangelism. But as I say, just for, as for you as a Christian, these are your three essentials too. This goes individually and collectively. Okay? Could I have my PowerPoint up, please? So this is week three. And we're still on the ready phase, the, the actual prayer phase. So far, we have looked at how to pray, when to pray, and types of prayer. Now, I uh, praise God for what Pastor Elia was, was saying there, because that's exactly what we need to do. Today, we're going to talk about your heart. Your heart. You know, David said to God, shine a light on me that I would see my own heart. Now, I don't know how you feel. Sometimes in the presence of God, he can reveal your heart to you and when you meet people under that sort of anointing, it's a fantastic experience. It's an eye-opener. But I pray that that continues in us. Do you know, in regards to praying, one of the main reasons people don't pray is because they think that God won't listen to them. People tend to think they're not good enough. It's always somebody else. Oh, God will answer his prayer. God will answer her, her prayer. And I'll pray, but I'm not quite so sure that God will actually answer my prayer. That's stinking thinking. That's bad thinking. If you're born again, if the blood of Jesus was shed for you, believe me, God wants you to pray. Amen. It's part of you, you know, your whole purpose in life. It's today's topic actually, to be a priest, which is very much the praying nature that God has put in you if you're saved. But we think there's a, a holy Joe, as it were. We think, and you remember, what was it, where is it, James, is it? It says, Elijah was a man just like you. And he prayed, right? Elijah was a man just like you and he prayed and God heard him. And God answered him. And God will answer you too. It's just believing it and speaking. The Bible says, you don't have because you don't ask. I was sitting in Malacca once in Malaysia with a whole bunch of guys after a meeting. And uh, we were just having a good time. We had ordered some, so we didn't have a lot of money, so we had ordered a few pizzas, but there was a buffet. We couldn't afford the buffet. Eat as much as you like, you know. Couldn't afford that, so we just got a few little things, and everybody was still hungry. You know, pizzas were gone, and these guys were walking around with trays. I thought, this guy came walking down with a big pizza on a tray. I thought, I might, may as well ask, huh? Don't ask, you don't get. I said, excuse me, sir. You see that? Can I have it? <laughs> and he looked. He actually said, 
you know what? You can have it on the house. Have it. Just a simple little ask, just a try. And, you know, it's a silly thing, really, isn't it, that the Bible should ever have to say, you don't have because you don't ask. And it can sound hyper-spiritual. People say when you pray, you know, don't bring a shopping list. Have you ever heard that? That's exactly the opposite of what you should bring a shopping list. Jesus said, when you pray, say. And then he went through a whole list of things that you were to say. It's not spiritual not to bring the things you need to pray for. It's very unspiritual. So I, I believe God wants to get into us. We, we had a great day yesterday. I was sharing with the guys. My wife had a word and they, about four, a month or more ago, but six weeks ago. And the word was cleanse the temple. That's you. Cleanse the temple. Get all the sin out. And I tell you, when I heard that, I instantly, I knew what it meant. There's a visitation. The Lord wants to inhabit us. Come and live in us. More than he is. To expand himself within us. To grow in us. More effective through you. Amen? And that's something of what's happening at this time. Two Peter, uh, 1 Peter, sorry. 1 Peter chapter 2. And verse 9, look at this. This is talking about you, who you are. This is a description of you. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you might declare his, the, the, the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people. I mean, look at us, guys. We're from all over the globe. Once we were not a people. We were for many different peoples, but now we have been made a people. What a fantastic thing. What a great blessing to be brought together in the kingdom of God. We are a holy, uh, a holy priesthood, a, uh, uh, sorry, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And do you know what that means for you? It means that you are chosen. It's not just us, but you are chosen. You are a chosen person. It means that not just that we're a royal priesthood, but it means that you are a royal priest. It means we're all in this together. Now, our current focus for Ready, Steady, Go is the prayer bit. And we want to really understand the, the, the ministry of prayer. It's the priestly part of you. The prayer ministry coming out of your spirit. But I wonder how much we actually know about the priesthood. I want Because this is the priesthood of all believers. Do you believe? Any believers here? You're a priest. This is the priesthood of all believers. And I need to understand the priesthood. I need to understand how the priest functions. I need to understand the tabernacle. I need to understand most importantly, and listen to this one guys, I need to understand how to draw near to God. How to come into the holy of holies. Now as I live on earth. Never mind heaven. And that's what we're going to look at today. Let me ask a very simple question. Don't answer it out loud. How do you draw near to God? And if we went around this room, guys, and I asked you, how do you draw near to God? Very few, very few people would give the, you know, a complete answer. Oh, I fast, I pray. Fine. I'm talking as a priest. How do you draw near to God? Today, in the New Testament... And the answer, of course, is with offerings, with sacrifices and with offerings. The, the, the system never changed. 
The priest was to approach God with sacrifices and offerings. Turn to Malachi. It's the last book in your Old Testament. Malachi. Take a look at this. They actually ask God that same question right here. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. And look at this. Return to me. Come back to me. Draw near to me. Return to me and I will, redor- and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how do I return? You ask, how does a man draw near to God? Well, a man robbed God, yet you robbed me. But you ask, how do we rob you? And look at the next line. In tithes and offerings. Do you get it? You see the answer to the question there in verse 7. Return to God. And the answer, the, the question asked, how do we return to you, Lord? And the answer is lower down. We approach God with sacrifices, with offerings. And as I say, this is not just an Old Testament system. This is very much alive and kicking in our day. Now, of course, the Old Testament, Old Testament rituals and the Judaic customs, they all passed away. But the system of sacrifices and offerings never did pass away. And see your New Testament, priest? Do you know what you, your New Testament tells you to do? To approach God with spiritual sacrifices and offerings. And that's exactly what the priests did preceding the prayer in the holy place. I can't believe Elia did that this morning. <laughs> I got up this morning and I was toying in my mind, we should really take, take the offering and, you know, and explain to you the nature of how your offerings should be brought before God. And that's exactly what he did. But God is trying to get something through to us, friends. You see, we were talking yesterday. There's three types of, of ministry, if you like, mentioned in the Bible. Your duties. You've got duties as a believer. Duties, service, that's your gift. Duties, service, and sacrifices. There's three things should be emanating out of your life. Your duties, tithing. Your duties, multiple duties within the body of Christ, within the church. Loads of jobs for us to do are duties, right? And then there's sacrifices. It's a different thing. And we live in a day when people treat everything like a sacrifice. But it isn't. We've lost, as modern-day Christians, born-again believers in 2009, we've lost all comprehension in some ways of what a sacrifice is and how offerings function and how they actually open the hand of God, open the eyes, open the ears of God. Offerings, if you like, pave a way for us into that holy place. That's exactly what they did. Take a look at the book of Acts a moment. Acts chapter 10. Let me see what an, let me show you what an offering can do for you. Acts chapter 10. Acts 10 and verses 1 to 3. You will see a man here. And this is a great scripture. Acts 10 verse 1. At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave, see that? He gave generously to those in need and he prayed to God regularly. One day at about 3 o'clock in the afternoon he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked the angel. Uh, the angel answered, Your prayers and your gifts to the poor 
have come up to the Lord as a memorial, a memorial offering before God. Now send men and on he goes. He gives them a task to do. So here you've got a man, right? And he's giving, he's making sacrificial offerings, he's tithing, if you like, and, and beyond. And that actually gets God's attention. And, the, and what God does with him is gives him something else to do. Actually gives him something, you know, a, a task to do in the kingdom. And I honestly believe, you see, the, 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 that, that, that we do not grasp this in our day, and so we don't enter the holy place, in the, 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 the holy of holies, in the way that we should. It's a problem when it comes to prayer. Take a look at the list. The, in the Old Testament, of course there was rituals. We know that. There was the burnt offering, right? When the priest would bring a bull or a calf and there would be the, the brazen altar at the entrance there to the, to the tabernacle. In the New Testament, we don't bring bulls here this morning, amen, or sheep. We become living sacrifices, not dead ones, not martyrs in that sense. Around the world there are martyrs, but God calls us first to live, amen. To live for Christ, not so much to die for him. We're called to be living sacrifices. Living sacrifices, that's tough. So the fire is in me, not on the goat or the bull. I set myself on the altar, and it's hot, and he burns, and I want to jump off. Living sacrifices, standing in the flame of God. That's the New Testament reality of that Old Testament ritual based on relationship. They, they used to have a meal offering, whereas for us, we have sacrificial offerings, good, or good works. When we do good works in the kingdom, that's the same, that's the corresponding grace in the New Testament. They used to have a peace offering. We, we have a sacrifice of praise, because praise can be a sacrifice sometimes. If you're sick, and you're here this morning, and you worship God's sacrifice, sacrifice of praise. If you're skint, and you're here this morning, and you worship God. That's good. It's good to worship God. No matter what your condition, he, he considers that a sacrifice of praise. So you see, these sacrifices and offerings, they exist. But they're now spiritual. It's not a goat or a bull or whatever. There was this sin offering, and Jesus is that for us. There was the trespass offering, and that's confession. In fact, the, the sin offering we remember in communion. Could I have my tabernacle up there, please? Take a look at this. This is the tabernacle. And this is what a priest should know better than anything else. It was their job to look after it. And it's your job to know it. People say, you know, you can't show me your God. <laughs> no. You can't show me heaven. Well, maybe I could show you a little bit of heaven. But God said to Moses, build the tabernacle as an exact replica of that which exists in heaven. And that's it. So we know that before the throne of God, there's a certain design that works just like this. And in his grace, he gave us a little bit of insight. There was the outer court, there was the holy place, and there was the holy of holies. Three, body, soul, and spirit. There's three different parts to you. The outer court dealt with the, 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 the flesh side of you, if you like. The body side. And that's why the carcasses were burned on the fire. A man, a, a priest would enter through the gate, and there's the fire. It's the first thing that would happen. A sacrifice would be laid on that altar, right? And then he would continue. The next bit that he came upon was the laver. But let me just pause there, actually. You see that? Oh, man. There was two miracles in the tabernacle, two different things that happened. When the priest would enter through the gate, let's say the people of Israel are moving, right? They would move to a place until God said stop. 
And then when they stopped, they had to build this thing exactly as God required it. When it was built, the priest would carefully go in and he would put and build this brazen altar and put the sacrifice on it. And the first miracle is all the, all the tribes used to camp around this. Now you can imagine the atmosphere. The sacrifice is ready. The tabernacle is built. And all the tribes would stand and wait. Because you see, a miracle took place. The fire to light the sacrifice was not given by men. It came out of heaven. And fire would fall and consume the sacrifice. So the nation of Israel, the Jews, they did follow God. They had great signs and wonders. And that led them actually into great judgment because of the way they treated that. And God had revealed them. They saw the fire fall and yet still rejected God. The first miracle in the tabernacle is that the fire fell. Now the second miracle, it doesn't stop there. That's just the brazen altar. Oh, by the way, if they moved, as soon as the fire started, it was the priest's job to keep it going. And God will light your fire, but he won't keep it going. Do you know the thing about fires? Do you know what they need? Fuel. Fuel. And do you know what they need? Constant fuel. How do I fuel my fire? How do you fuel your fire? Sacrifices and offerings. And it keeps the fire going. And God licks them up, laps them up if you like. The fire takes them. Now, so they set the tabernacle up. They would put the sacrifice just as God had commanded. The fire would fall and all Israel would know God was in the house. Right? Now, if they let the fire go out in this place, if the priest got lazy and that did happen, and the fire went out, did the fire from heaven fall a second time? No. God would only light the fire once. And if they let it go out, they had the laborious process, like being backslidden, you see. They had the laborious process of having to work the fire themselves, light the fire themselves. And then what happened then? God wouldn't light the fire the second time. The only time he would relight it is if they had to decamp. So they would decamp, pack everything up and move. Then they had to set the tabernacle up again and down the fire would come again. He would, he would ignite it when they had moved to a new place. You see? Now this is symbolic of us. When you got saved, when you came to Christ, you came to him with your life. You put that life on the altar. Right? And God accepted that. The fire maybe fell on you and you knew that. That's the outer man. That's the outer court. And that's, that, that's fantastic. It doesn't stop there. We go on to wash in the laver. And the laver is symbolic of baptism. Symbolic of, of getting your head around the fact that God is a good God. And dealing with sin quickly. Washing quickly. I mean, if you get something on your hand, what do you do? Go and wash. And so there was a laver. You see? God's trying to get a point to, you know, home to us. As soon as you do something wrong, I'm a gracious God. I'll forgive you. Get, get, get rid of it. Come before me. Confess and forsake quickly. Don't let sin remain upon you. So there was the brazen altar followed very quickly by the laver. And then you entered into the holy place. Not the holy of holies yet, but the holy place. And that was a, it was actually overlaid in gold with a candelabra, that the menorah that stood there. So you can imagine that shimmering light. And in that holy place there, the bread was there, the showbread, symbolic of Christ, symbolic of communion. These were all pictures, foreshadows 
of what was to come. So what happened in the holy place? Not the holy of holies. What happened in the holy place? I've got saved. I've, I've made that initial, you know, sacrifice, if you like. I've come to God. I'm learning to walk with him. I'm learning to quickly deal with sin and to stand upright and walk. I go into the whole, what's the holy place about? And suddenly in that place, in that dim light, God shows you, I believe, the gravity of what was paid to save you. Because in that dim place, you see the, the bread. And you, can, you, you get a reminder of the broken body of Jesus Christ. Broken for who? Broken for me. And it was a place of bringing it home. You know, young believers, new converts, full of joy, full of Amen. Amen. No problem. Keep that. That's your first love. Hang on to it. But you know, I think it takes some time before the depth of the sacrifice of the Son of God begins to actually register. And just like a human couple, a husband and wife, they may love each other when they get married. But my oh my, there is no comparison to later love. Love gets, it gets phenomenally deeper, far deeper, far different as the years go by. And so as you progress into the, the holy place, there is that bread, there is that dim light. And suddenly I believe the gravity, the seriousness of what's been paid so that you could go free begins to register. You know, I was sharing with the guys yesterday, I used to drink like a madman. I drank for about 10 years. I had a real problem with it. I started when I was a kid, when I was about 15 or 16, and I started to drink very heavily almost immediately. And I was living at home. And my parents were disturbed by that, but I didn't think they were too disturbed. I didn't think it was such a big deal. So I was coming home drunk, coming home late. And one day I turned up at the house unexpectedly. I walked in, sort of bustled in, and I caught my mum crying. Hey, that was an unusual event. She wasn't like that. I said, what are you crying about? She wouldn't tell me. I'm following her around the house. What's wrong? She stopped and she turned to me and she said, I'm crying because of you. Because you're going out and getting drunk. And I'm worried about you. Well, I tell you, boom. I never drank again in that house. Ever. Never. That was it. I had no idea of the seriousness of the pain I was causing. But as soon as I saw it, it changed me. Right? And that's what the holy place is about. Do you know one sin in you against God is the most unbelievable, unthinkable thing? Right? It's the most extreme thing that you can imagine. Sin. It's just we can't see it that way. And so this extremity in you and in me had to be counterbalanced by the most unthinkable thing ever to humankind or to the most unthinkable thing that the Son of God, innocent, pure, eternal, never separated from His Father, that the Son of God should stand on a cross for me. And we do not get this seriousness of it. And I believe the, the holy place is the place where the priest is to stop. You've laid down your life. You've made your sacrifice. You're repenting of your sin. And you walk into that place and suddenly it's a point of maturity. A point where it's to be come home to you because sometimes you've got to be sat down. Somebody needs to sit you down and say, listen, I need to tell you something. 
the Son of God entered the human race and died for you. It's a growing up day. And that's what that is right there in that holy place. And you know what happens there? The priest, this is the place where he worships. This is the place where the, second, the first miracle was that God lit the fire. The second miracle happens between the holy place and the, the holy of holies. There was a thick, high curtain called the veil. And there was no door. They, they, it was to be seamless. There was no door that the priest could enter into the holy of holies. But the priest was instructed to lift a censer, actually, and to worship God, standing before the veil where there's no known way to make a bridge from man to God. There's no way through. But the key was worship. He was to praise God, to lift up God and thank Him for everything. And then the second miracle took place. And the priest would pass through the veil. That's why in the book of Acts, you see Jesus appeared, remember? It was symbolic of the veil no longer being there. And we have access to Jesus, if you like. Right? That's the second miracle. Fantastic things. And you can begin to see the dynamic that was happening with Israel and why the nations were so frightened of them. But praise, worship needs to be a, a central part of your life. And absolutely, yes, it's a sacrifice sometimes. Not always, but sometimes. If you don't worship God, see, folks, you're going to worship something. You'll probably end up worshiping someone. That's what most people do. You'll turn to people. In Romans chapter 1, they turned aside to created things, people. They turned aside and worshipped created things and forsake me. They're God. You're going to worship something. Make sure it's God. Your mind is going to be filled with something. Doubts and fears or praise and faith. The choice is yours. But don't underestimate the power of praise. In Psalm 8 verse 2, it says that praise silences the devil. Hallelujah. Fantastic. And as the priest would stand there, and as you stand there, as we stand here this morning, the idea is that, that worship and praise opens up that veil. And even if you've come here in a carnal state, if you've come here in a backslidden state, you can walk through this tabernacle. You can make an offering, as we did. You can wash and confess. You can push up against that veil and start to praise God and watch that miracle take place. And it was in this, in the Holy of Holies, when the priest found himself standing in that place, that's where the heart transplant took place. Turn to the book of Ezekiel, please. Look at this. Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 26. This is one of the scriptures we looked at yesterday. I just want to make sure we're all on the same page as we go forward together as a church. Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 26. God says, I will give you a new heart. Who will? I believe God. I believe God. If it was something that I had to do, it was some, you know, dependent on me, you could have a lot less faith in that. But God says that he'll make it his business to give me a new heart, to put something in me. And I long for that. And I'm, that's exactly, I believe, where we are as a fellowship right now. See, in this holy place, many things happen to you. And you can enter this right now because Christ has died, the veil is torn. But in that place, many different things happen to you. And one of them, and a very important one, is that you actually meet the real God. 
you meet the real Jesus. And I don't know about you, but it's a confusing world out there, a confusing Christian world. Flick through the channels, the God channels, you know? And one church is so serious, the next church they're all mad, you know? And it really is a question, would the real Jesus please stand up? Right? It's a very confusing, you would feel sorry for, I mean, a newcomer coming into the world today, and with all these choices, all these representations of Jesus Christ, I'm confused. The Catholics say this, the Pentecostals say it's a confusing world out there. You know, God help them, really. And that's part of the reason for this. It's part of the reason for the, for the Holy of Holies. Because in there, do you know what happens? You meet God. You meet God. And from that point on, when you've had that contact, they can't fool you. The only reason that cults prosper is because the people don't know the truth. If they knew the truth, they wouldn't fall for the cult. And it's the same with God. Once you know the real God... And that's what this whole thing is to do, to bring you to him, to meet with him. We will not be fooled. It changes us in a, in a myriad of ways. This is important, guys. You need a first-hand experience of God, not a second-hand one. If you fall for a second-hand one, it just doesn't change us, I'm afraid. Not in anywhere near the same way. Remember what we said about sin. There's first-hand sin and second-hand sin, Right? Second-hand sin doesn't change you. Only first-hand sin does. So Adam and Eve are in the garden. They haven't sinned. But there's a tree. So God warns them, don't touch the tree. It's like sin, right? Knowledge of good and evil. Don't touch that. That's second-hand knowledge. It doesn't change them. So they're able to walk. And as long as they don't make it first-hand, they don't change. You get it? Do you understand? It's the first-hand knowledge that changes you. And that's what happens here. You've got to meet God for yourself. And that's a protection for you. Because once you've met him, you will know his spirit, you will know his voice, and you can stay safe that way. You'll also know the devil's spirit and the devil's voice. One of the things, we had a large Romanian church in, in Ireland, and one, one of the things they used to love about their communion service was, it's, I mean, some people may see it as a little bit religious, but I thought it was a very good touch. They maybe have 300 people, but the pastor had to give the communion cup to every person individually, one by one. And it's just symbolism, you see. It's got to be personal. First, you need a first-hand experience of God. That's what they're communicating to the congregation. I, I, I hope that we can do this, friends, either in all-nighters and we make it our dwelling place. God's saying to you and to me, cleanse the temple. Cleanse your temple. I want to take that very seriously. Because when he comes to visit, I want him to live in my house. I want him to be able to reside here, to be pleased with this as a dwelling for you, Lord. Show me what I've got to move. Show me what I've got to do so that you inhabit me. Now, see this fire? This, this really can be dangerous stuff. It is possible for a person to be absolutely on fire for God, but not have the heart of God at all. It's possible for a person to be totally enthusiastic for everything to do with the church. They're at every meeting, but not have the heart or the nature of God at all. Because the fire preceded 
the heart change. The fire was the first thing. Zeal is not the whole deal. Not at all. And by all means, the fire fell. But that is not the change of heart that happens in the Holy of Holies. The priest had more to do. He had further to go. And that's what we must do. Not just stop with that fire. As he entered into the Holy of Holies, that's, I believe, where Ezekiel's promise comes true. I will place in you a new heart. Do you know this? This is like the anointing, if you like, the Holy of Holies. It's the place where God is taking you over. And I tell you, I've done many meetings over the last 20 years. But in a couple of meetings, it was kind of special, you know? A couple of times, I remember one, it was, a, it was a combined meeting of about seven African churches in Dublin. And we had a major venue in the city, and I was ministering at that event. Man, boah! Powerful! Unbelievable! So the only time in my life I didn't get a message. Normally you get your message before, no word. And I'm sitting there shaking. God, help me. Lord, don't do this to me. I had to get up there and go, but it was, it was unbelievable, fantastic. And after that thing ended, people gather around you, you know, and they say, God, what does it feel like? What does it feel like to be in that place? We could see God, we could feel God. What does it feel like? And you know, the people have crazy ideas. Do you know what it feels like? When the anointing comes upon you, or God, do you know what it feels like? An anesthetic. And do you know what you're anesthetized to? Your goodness and your badness. You're right and you're wrong. Do you know what the flesh makes you conscious of? Your sin. And tries to put up self-condemnation in your heart and separate you from God. But when God comes in, he anesthetizes your sin. That's what the anointing does. So you're not conscious of how good you are, how bad you are. It's irrelevant. You're conscious of one thing only, God. God. I remember the the first time I ever spoke, I was sitting and it's my first experience of it. I was scared. I was frightened. And I I didn't know, but I remember that anointing for the first time coming upon me. And then after the meeting was over, it left. And I remember looking back and thinking... You anesthetized me, God. I remember half an hour before the meeting being frightened and all consciousness left me. I went through that, through the veil, ministered, and and you hardly knew what happened. And you kind of need, we need to get used to living in that place so that we take the Holy of Holies out. It's in here, by the way. It's inside you, that God would dwell in you. So this, don't get a religious perspective on this. Don't get a religious perspective on all these sins because when people look at Jewish traditions and all that, they, they, they can take that route. Don't take that route. But in this place, God wants to change us. And if you look at Hebrews, he'll show you a few things that are needed. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. Verse 15. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 tells us about the the heart of God and what Jesus is actually like. And this is what you should be like. This is what I should be like. This is what my heart should be like. Hebrews 4 verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, 
But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. So let us approach this throne of grace in all sincerity and receive grace and mercy. And back in in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17, you see the same thing. For this reason, Jesus is talking about, for this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way. So that he could be a merciful and understanding high priest. I don't know about you folks, but that I want that heart in me. I want to be able to look at people with empathy. Not to be judgmental. Not to have a them and us attitude in my heart. You know, the lost are very discerning. And they will suss you out at a hundred paces. If there is a judgmental spirit in you, they will suss you out at a distance and walk straight past you. But if there is hope in you for them, Sinners did what to Jesus? Flocked to Jesus. Why? (laughs) Because there was hope exuding from him. There was light coming from him. And the religious hated it because they knew it wasn't in them. They were convicted because they knew that their heart, there may be fire, but there was no heart. And the religious hated him for that reason. And one of the things that happens in that holy place is that that anointing is supposed to come on us. That heart change causes you to love the lost, to love the sinner, to believe once again in the lost, to believe in people, but not to see them as wicked in that sense. Jesus saw them as sheep, not goats, remember? He called them lost, not goats, not goats. In other words, he saw them as his. He identified that you are mine, I'm getting you back. And that's the sort of attitude that comes with that heart. You know, I hate country and western music. You want to go and shoot yourself after listening to most of it. But somebody played a song in here once that was very good. I don't know if you remember it. It was called, Don't Shoot the Wounded. Remember that? How great little song. Very good. Must have been saved, huh? Don't shoot the wounded. That was it. Just the same line over again. Over and over again. Don't shoot the wounded. One day you might be wounded. Don't shoot the wounded. One day you might be wounded. And it was a great little point. A very good point. When when, when we get saved, so quickly we become paratroopers. Fire. So quick to run at it. All fire and no heart. All enthusiasm and zeal. And your heart is not yet changed. We're not fit to minister then, you see. We need to press through, complete that, you know, dedication to God, finish the work of a priest, understand what your job is. Now, obviously, today we're talking about prayer, not evangelism, because that's what that leads to. But just focusing on prayer. When you go in there to that holy place, God will change your heart to a praying heart, just like Cornelius. He was making offerings. He was praying before God. Give you a a patient heart, a compassionate heart. And I thank God, guys, that we have a man in heaven. That's, that's, That's priceless. I mean, who could improve on the design of God? That's brilliant. We have a man. It's a book of Acts, isn't it? We have a man in heaven. God entered the human race. God became man. That, that, I mean, you could not have done better for us. Man, you must love us to enter this race and to take us up. To lift us out of the muck. Praise you, Jesus. Thank you, God, for that. Because in him, in Jesus, I can have hope. He will save me. He will get me through. 
He's been through it in every way, tempted like me. In every way. So I can there, he can therefore empathize with me. I can have hope in myself because of him. I shared with you before, it was one of the scariest occasions I, I, I've ever ministered in. I was in the States in Texas, you know. And they have these t-shirts saying, don't mess with Texas for a reason. Texans can be tough, you know. And we had a room full of Texas pastors. And Pastor Rick was sitting beside me from Singapore. Some of you will know him. And he was on first and I was on second. But I tell you, man, these guys were intimidating. I mean, really intimidating. They didn't have guns or anything. <laughs> but you may as well have had. And I was sitting there and I was nervous, nervous, nervous. And I just happened to look across at him. Man, he was shaking. <laughs> I was delighted. I was absolutely delighted. Because he preaches the tens of thousands, you know. I look at him. He's frightened. Praise the Lord. What am I worried about? Do you know what? Look, listen. Because he was frightened, I had no fear. How does that work? Because he was, I, I, I saw in him that weakness. I saw that he was facing that. It somehow set me free. Did you get it? You know, Elijah was a man just like me. And something, there was something of freedom in there. Right? And it's the same with Jesus. Oh boy. I'm struggling with this temptation. Oh, Jesus. Tempted in every way. Just like man. I can bring, he'll understand. You might not. You might not. But he'll understand. Do you know who would understand? A saint who's had a heart transplant. If a saint has received the heart of God, that saint would understand. Amen? Forgive me for sharing this story again, guys, that were there yesterday. But I want to emphasize the point. Jeanette has a very, very compassionate heart. And that's why she married me. Hallelujah. <laughs> She's a very tender <laughs> and compassionate heart. Right? And we're sitting in this room in, in, in years and years ago. We're, we're, we're in Dublin in, in, in this church. And I'm on the back door. I'm doing the door. And there's about that, 150, 200 people in the room. And it's an evangelistic event. So like the, the guy's standing up here. I'm right at the back. And Jeanette's, you know, by where Helen is, about, just about there, right? And she's facing front. She's just standing there worshipping God. I'm on the back door. Two lost teenage girls come in and stand at the door. And they're giggling and nudging each other. But they wanted to come in. They just couldn't quite, you know, summon up the guts. And I was saying, come in, do this, do that. No, they wouldn't do it. And in the end, I said, well, would you, would you talk to anyone? Oh, Jesus lost two lost kids they looked the backs of the heads of the people and they said we'll talk to that woman i was stunned i was shocked you see discernment the lost consent a judgmental spirit. And I believe those girls came into that place to find God. And God was nudging them. I, didn't, I don't want to condemn you. I want to save you. Amen. And I, I, I'm still shocked at that. It's a fantastic thing. I want that heart in me. I want to be the priest that God's called me to be. And that's going to require different things. Sacrifice. Offerings. Praise. And worship. And pushing through the veil. And letting him do that spiritual surgery that I so desperately need. Why don't we do that, eh? Let's invite the worship team. Let's do that.
this morning, right now, if you feel you're, that your heart is cold, that you've got that heart of stone, let's ask God to press us through the veil into the holy place. Let's stand a moment and it's not available to God, then place it on that altar. Make whatever sacrifice you need to do. If you need to wash at the laver and confess your sins, then do so. Wash and be made clean by confession and forsaking sin. God has provided for you forgiveness, but you must confess and forsake. Thank you for listening to today's program. I trust you have been blessed and edified by what you've heard. I want to ask you to do something, and that is to become a partner with us here at Preparing the Way. By doing so, you can help us to take these essential messages out to many other nations, many other people around the world. You can become a partner by visiting our website, preparingtheway.tv, and there you will find many ways that you can join up. Folks, it is a pleasure and an honor to partner with you in bringing in the end times harvest. God bless you, and once again, thank you for listening.